If you can hear this message, listen closely. To the exiled, misunderstood, or upside down, this is your message of hope. When problems come, use them. When enemies persecute you, love them. These struggles are a fire, refining you into gold. Look around. You are not forgotten. You are not alone. Challenge what is expected of you. This world is not your home. You are different. Hey, we are beginning a brand new series today. We are going through the book of 1 Peter in just four weeks. Some of you think it can't be done by me, but I'm about to prove you wrong, that I can actually teach four chapters in four weeks. And the the whole idea behind Peter is that we've been called to live a life that is different, as you saw from that sweet space odyssey-esque little trailer there. But as uh, Peter, the book was written as a letter uh, to some believers, and as you might have guessed, it was written by Peter. And it was written somewhere in the years 60 to 65 AD. We're not exactly sure what year it was written, but we do know what the circumstances were at the writing of this letter. Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time, and if you know any Roman emperors other than the little Caesar guy, Nero might be the one that you know. And he's known because he was just one of the worst individuals that has ever lived throughout all of history. He was so bad that he murdered his mother when he became uh, emperor. He murdered his sister. He murdered his first wife. He most likely murdered his second wife. We're not exactly sure. And on top of murdering his family, he murdered every political opponent that he had, people who displeased him. He was just an all-around terrible guy. He had an insatiable lust to build, and he wanted to rebuild Rome, all these great monuments to him and testaments of his greatness that would stand throughout all of time. So he wanted to tear buildings down and rebuild them, But the Senate said, no way, our buildings are perfectly fine. We don't need to spend the money on doing all of that. So he decided to take matters into his own hands, and he started a fire in July of 64 AD, which burned for six days, just burning through the entire city of Rome so that he could then rebuild everything. Now, the six-day fire didn't burn enough stuff for him, so a couple days later, he started another fire, which burned on for another three days, so he finally had the amount of land that he wanted to be able to use for his new buildings. The Senate was not happy with him about this, as you might imagine, and he was taking a lot of heat from it from the public, so he decided to blame it on a small fanatical group of people who were already pretty hated and despised called Christ Ones, which later ended up being called Christians. Uh, The Christ Ones were, were not popular already because they were so weird, they were different from everybody else, and you know how culture is. You have to despise and hate anybody that's not exactly like you. So they already are not well-liked. And then when Nero decides that he's going to blame the fire on them, it takes it to a whole other level of hatred for them. And being a Christian ends up becoming something that is very, very dangerous for you. What Nero would do when he would catch Christians is uh, he would kill them in many different brutal ways. One of his favorite ways was he would take animal skins and he would wrap the Christian in an animal skin and then throw them into a small cage with wild, ravenous dogs that had been starved so that way the dogs would maul and tear apart the people that were thrown in there. And he would watch that with a goblet of wine sipping from that as a form of entertainment for himself and a weapon of terror to try to get other people to renounce their faith in Jesus. He also would do, uh, he had these lavish parties that would take place at his palace And in his backyard, he had a chariot track that he would ride around, and he'd do races there for entertainment. At nighttime, there's no light, so it's hard to do your chariot races then. 
he came up with an idea to dip Christians in wax or in tar, depending on what he had available. He would then tie them to a tree or to a wooden stake around the perimeter of the gardens, and then he would light them on fire while they were still alive as a way to light the gardens at his party. I mean, just as sadistic and as evil and as cruel of a person as you can possibly imagine. For us, when, when we think about Christian persecution, it's like, oh, some friend posted an, like an, an anti-Christian meme on Facebook. I'm so persecuted. Like, God save me from this. Like, we don't understand persecution. If someone says, oh, you're weak-minded, Christianity is a crutch. It's like, that's not persecution, people. That's just like ribbing, you know, giving it to each other, stuff like that. That's not persecution. Getting mauled by dogs and burned on stakes, that's persecution. And that's exactly what the Christians were going through. And so Peter is writing a letter to them as they're going through all of this persecution. And what he's doing is he's giving them a message of hope. He's giving them a message that they can continue to go on through all of the trials that they're facing. He's letting them know that you can stand and that you can endure and persevere all of the, the difficulties that you go through in life. And so as we're reading this, this is the lens that we have to have, is we need to understand that we might not suffer persecution like Christians then did, but you still have a persecutor of your soul who is Satan. And he wants to destroy you. And you might be going through seasons right now of where you're going through, maybe it's physical pain, relational pain, uh, maybe you're going through uh, a sickness, maybe there's an issue going on in your marriage, maybe you're going through divorce, uh, maybe there's, as a cancer, you're not able to conceive a child. Like, there's a lot of different things that we can go through in life. And there's a lot of things that we don't always have answers to or that we don't understand why it is that we're going through this trial. We might wonder, God, why are you letting this happen? God, are you good? God, do you love me? What's going on? Do you even care? Should I just give up? Is faith worth it? And the answer to that is unquestionably, yes, it is. And as Peter starts unwrapping this for us, we'll see that. Then, then maybe uh, you're like me until a few years ago, and your life was just awesome all the time, and rainbows were everywhere, and unicorns were taking you to work. And you're like, this doesn't apply to me. But there's going to come a day when you're going to go through some things in your faith that you're not going to have answers to. The day of trouble, the time of testing will come for every single one of us. And if you can understand ahead of time what's happening during that process, you'll be much better equipped to navigate through it. So as we start the letter, it begins by saying, This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And he starts out by saying right there, you're foreigners. He's, in uh, some of your Bibles, I might say that you're an exile, a sojourner, aliens, strangers. This one happens to say foreigners. But the whole idea behind that is Peter is, is right from the beginning of the letter, he's setting everything up by saying, this is not your home. This isn't the place that you belong this isn't your culture. These aren't your people. You're someone who was different from the world that's around you. I remember the first time I went to Mexico, I was 15 years old, was going down there to build some homes uh, for homeless that were living on a trash dump. And, you know, I didn't have to tell anybody that I wasn't from that town when I was there. <laughs> they looked at me. I had a long red ponytail down to here. I was wearing purple umbros, which when I look back at photos, I'm like, it couldn't have even been cool then, let alone now. 
And I'm walking around in my tank top. I'm, you know, whiter than any white that anybody has ever seen before. And then I turned bright red, and then I turned really peely. And so, like, everybody's looking at me, and they see that I'm, like, trying to eat the food. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is good. And I don't speak the language. The only thing I understood that they were saying was when they were calling me a gringo, pelo de fuego, and something about, like, white devil. <laughs> and like, the kids were funny. They're like, I love those kids. But we were doing these things. I didn't have to tell anybody, hey, I'm not from this village. You might not have guessed it, but I'm a foreigner here. I'm a sojourner here. This isn't my home. These aren't my people. And because of that, I'm living out a different culture. I'm living out the Michigan culture while I'm living in a village in Mexico. Now, the same thing should be true of us as Christians. We shouldn't have to tell people, like, I am a follower of Jesus. I found the way, the truth, and the life. Let me tell you about it. I have a tract for you. Like, we shouldn't have to explain that we're Christians to people. People should just be able to look at us. They should be able to see the way that we live our life and know that these are Christ ones. These are the people that have submitted their life to Jesus. They don't live like the rest of us. They're not following the culture like the rest of us are. They're different from us. They should look at us and say, Christians have different values. When someone looks at you, do they see that you're a Christian by the values that you're living your life by? Do they see that Jesus has shaped your morality? Do they see that Jesus has shaped what you to believe to be true? When someone looks at you, do they see that Jesus has shaped the way that you use your money? Because the way that we use our money as followers of Jesus should be radically different than the way that the people are around us use their money. When they look at our marriages, do they see something that's drastically different than the marriages of the people that are in our culture? Everything about us should be different if we're following Jesus. Because when we make the decision to follow Jesus, it's not just that we believe that he exists, but it's that we've bent the knee before King Jesus and said, I have found you to be inherently worthy of everything that I have. I believe that you are the way, that you are the truth, and that you are the life. It's not just something I say, but it's reshaped my heart at the core of who I am, my identity. I view myself as a son or a daughter of the living, God. I'm not of this world. I'm a citizen of heaven, and I don't live according to the culture of this world, but I live according to the culture of heaven right here on this earth, here and now. You know, I'll keep ribbing on worship for a little bit. This is what I found. The other week, I was watching the Lions game, any of you, or like two weeks ago, when Golden Tate caught the touchdown, and you thought you'd won the game, but you really didn't because we're the Lions and everybody hates us. I'm just watching the game, and I'm just like, yeah, like I stood up from my couch and I'm like holding my baby and like one hand like, yes, oh, don't cry, my wife's going to kill me. And I'm, and I'm just like, it was, I wasn't thinking if the Lions score a touchdown here, I'm going to like raise my hands and jump and shout and freak out my baby. It just happened and it happened to everybody else. And anytime you go to a sporting event or political rallies, people are going nuts, they're going insane, they're worshiping. But then we're like, as Christians, I mean, it's great to get excited about football, but we should be so much more excited about when we come into worship. Like, yes, the king of kings is here. Oh my gosh, he beat the devil. I have life. I have freedom. I have joy. Like, this is the best thing and no ref can take that away from us. <laughs> this isn't how it went first service. <laughs> but we should be different. 
Everything about us should be different. We should be the most generous, most sacrificially loving, accepting, kind, compassionate people. We should be living our life in a way so when others look at us, like they can't make sense of it. Like You guys are stupid. Why are you so nice? Why are you so generous? Why are you so kind to me? Why are you just giving things away? Why do you live like this? Why are you, what you, like, this should blow their minds when they look at the way that we live. And it should be so beautiful and so attractive to them that we don't have to, like, give them the track. Here's the Romans road. They're just like, I want what you have. What I have is not that. I don't like what I have. I want what you have. That's the best form of evangelism that we could ever have is when we live a life that is different from the world around us in every single way. This is how Peter, uh, the first thing that he addresses about how we're to live our life is we should have a different faith in trials. No, who here likes trials and like suffering and all of that? Like nobody is like, yeah, sign me up for that. We don't like that and it's okay not to like that. But when the world around us comes into trials, into suffering, the way that they handle it and process it and walk through it should be very different than how we as Christ followers process through the trials that we run into in life. And this is what he says in verse 6. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. You see what he's saying there? He's not saying that God's going to deliver you from all of your trials right now. He's saying that you are going to endure trials for a little while. And remember who he's speaking to. People that are being burned at stakes and mauled by dogs. What they want to hear, like if I was preaching something, trying to get people to follow me, like, hey, it's all good. You're going to be delivered from all of this. No more dogs, no more fires. Peter's honest, and he says, you're going to go through this stuff for a while. You're going to have to endure some trials. You're going to have to go through some heartache. And he says that these trials will show that your faith is genuine. What does that mean? If there is a faith that is genuine, then that must mean that there is a faith that is false. And I'm afraid that for many of us that claim to be Christians, even many people that are in churches, is that we don't have a real and genuine faith, but in fact we have a false faith. And this is the different types of false faith. Number one, there's an inherited faith. And that means, hey, my mom was a, a Catholic, my dad went to a Presbyterian church, so I guess I'm a Presbyterian or something like that. But yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. Or it means that you're an American, and 80% of Americans claim to be a Christian, so I guess culturally I'm a Christian. And maybe that's the best way to explain it. It's cultural Christianity. It's because that's, you were born into a Christian family, or you don't follow Buddha, so I guess I'm a Christian. But what, the, what happens so many times is when we have just an inherited faith and it's not a real genuine faith inside of us, I see this all the time, is these kids, they grow up in church, mom and dad make them go to church and youth group and Sunday school and everything else, and I totally think you should make your kids do that. And then they get to college and they don't have mom and dad making them do things anymore. And then they start questioning everything. And, they, I, and I meet with them and they tell me, yeah, I grew up in church, but you know, now that I've had my first psychology class as a freshman, I, I really know how the world really is. <laughs> and, and so then they, they end up walking away from their faith. And the stat is that more than 50% of all kids that grow up in church end up walking away from their faith by the time they complete their four-year undergrad degree. Why is that? Because for a lot of them, it was never a genuine faith. 
We haven't taught our kids to encounter God. We haven't taught our kids to know for themselves that he is good, that he is love, that he's the one that pours blessings out on us, that he is the only life that we could ever find in all of this world. And so when they leave that, that inherited faith isn't enough to keep them going, so they walk away. The second thing is uh, there's a shallow faith. And Jesus talks about this in the parable of the seeds. Yeah, the sower's out there and he's just throwing the seeds all over the place. And some of it falls on ground that has lots of rocks in it. And so the roots, when they start growing, they can't go down deep because the rocks are there blocking it. And so when the time of testing comes, they're not able to withstand it because they don't have deep roots. It's a shallow faith that is easily destroyed. Uh, I see that all the time where it's like, okay, I think I love Jesus. I believe that he's true, but, you know, like... Then I'm reading my Bible and I encounter what God really wants me to live my life like. You think, I, I don't like that. Like, I don't want to, you want me to do what now, God? It's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Or, or maybe there is a little bit of, of peer pressure. And as soon as that comes, you, you fall away. The sermon that I preached where we lost the most people in one single day wasn't about politics. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about sex or anything like that. It was about marriage. And I simply said that if you're dating an unbeliever right now, that you need to get out of that relationship because God says that we are not to be unequally yoked. Because when you are dating an unbeliever, you're not going to draw them up to your level generally. That might happen occasionally. They're going to draw you away from your faith. That's exactly what happened to King Solomon. He married people. First of all, don't marry multiple people. That's the first <laughs> big issue. Marry one person. And make that person someone that's as passionately on fire and following after Jesus as you are. Because you want to encourage each other to grow in your faith. Not to walk away from faith. But uh, the greatest thing about my marriage is that my wife and I were encouraging each other to seek after Jesus more and more every day. Every single day. That's the greatest thing that marriage brings to me is I have someone, my soulmate, that we're going through life together and when I'm being stupid, she calls me out on it and not to like, condemn me or shame me, but you're called for more than this. God's called you to be more than this. You need to read your Bible. You need to pray. You need to go worship. You need to get out of the house, whatever it is that you need to do, but you need to seek Jesus first and foremost. You need someone that's going to do that. If your spouse isn't doing that for you, like good luck. It's not going to go well for you. I had like seven people that left the church that day because they were dating someone as an unbeliever and they thought I was so narrow-minded or so like bigoted and everything else and life has not gone well for any single one of them. And I don't like say this stuff because I want to make people mad but because I love you and I want you to walk into the fullness of the blessings God has for you. I can introduce you to person after person after person that married an unbeliever is now divorced and going through the pain of that. I want to save you from that. I'm way off of what I'm supposed to be talking about. But you come across things and you, you make this decision of like, you know what, I know the Bible says this. I know this is the call of God on my life. But my faith is shallow and I really want this other desire instead. So you end up walking away from your faith because it's shallow to begin with. And then the third one is a conditional faith. And that's, God, I'll follow you as long as you do this. God, if... If I get sick or if someone that I love dies or I pray for them and they don't get healed, then I'm going to walk away from you. People put all kinds of conditions on God of things, hoops that he has to jump through. It's like, all right, God, you can audition to be my Lord and Savior. Let's see how you do in the field test. Sorry, not quite high enough score. Didn't, didn't make the cut. Conditional faith will absolutely fail you and not allow you to live the life God's called you to. So this is what the trials do. Is number one, the trials reveal your faith. Is it genuine 
Or is it a false faith? It says these trials will show that your faith is genuine. The only way that you can see if someone's faith is real or not is when they go through the test. Every person that's on my staff is someone that I have seen go through testing and go through it well. I saw that when their faith was tested, when they had to make the difficult decision that they're going to follow after Jesus or not, that they made the decision that they were going to go strong after God. I can trust people that have been tested. If I haven't seen you go through a test, I'm not going to trust you with anything. And this is the way that God works too. Every person that he wants to bless, which is all of us, you first have to go through a testing to show that you can handle the blessing that he's going to pour out on you. One of the worst things that God could do to you would be to pour out more blessing than your character and faith can sustain because it will lead you to shipwreck your faith. It's why Abraham had to go through testing. It's why Joseph and Jacob, they all had to go through testing. It's why we see that Peter, the person who became the the head of the church after Jesus went to heaven, he went through testing. It says in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you out as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. What we see in this is that Satan is the enemy of your soul and he wants to destroy you. He has a really simple job description. And when his evaluations, it's like, okay, have you been stealing, destroying, and killing? It's like, yep, I did. Okay, you're doing good. That's the only thing that Satan does. And he hates you and he's trying to destroy you. But this is what it says. But I have prayed for you. Jesus is praying for us. He's empowering us supernaturally so that when we are tested, when our faith is being tested, we're able to stand through that. He also says to him, when you have returned, which means that Jesus knows that we're not going to go through every test perfectly. Aren't you glad that Jesus' standard for us isn't that we have to be perfect all the time, but that he was perfect and became the sacrifice for us. And now we are the recipients of God's grace. God knew that Peter wasn't going to pass this test of his faith on the first shot. But he said, but when you return, I know you're going to return, then I want you to strengthen your brothers. So what God's going to do is as he takes you through a test, when you emerge victorious from it, Paul wrote, he said, with the same comfort that you've received from God, comfort others who are going through testing with that same comfort that you have received. God wants to use the testing that you've gone through to be a blessing to other people. And then um, as we look at Peter, think about who Peter was. Before, like in the early years of his ministry, the dude was kind of a jerk. Super immature, hot-headed, really bold, but he did a lot of stupid things like cutting people's ears off and trying to call down fire on people. And when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there, Peter's like, no, all these other losers, they'll totally abandon you, but not me. Like, I'm going, I'll die with you if I have to, Jesus, but I'm never going to abandon you. Jesus says, actually, you're going to deny me three times. Never. Like, I'll die with you, Jesus. What happens? Jesus is arrested. Peter runs away with everybody else. And then he tries, like, sneaking incognito to the trial to see what's happening to Jesus. And three times, he denies. People are like, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? He's like, no, like I've never met him. I don't know anything about him. From I'm going to die with you, Jesus. Like, hey, I've never even met you. And the third time, it's to a little girl. This little girl's like, do you know Jesus, Peter? And he's like, no, I have no idea. Little girl like curses at her. It's like, you're going to die with him, but you're going to, like the reality is you're going to deny him to a little bitty girl with a lunch pail. Jesus walks by at that moment. The rooster crows, locks eyes with Jesus, and Peter's just crushed because he went through a test and he failed in it. 
Jesus is crucified on the cross. He's buried in the ground. Three days later, the tomb is empty. And Jesus reigns and rules over all things forevermore. Now, this could make for a really awkward encounter with Jesus, couldn't it? Like, oh gosh, the guy denied three times is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. Like, this is not going to go well for me. But Jesus appears to him and says, Peter, do you love me? He's like, you know I do. So then feed my sheep. And that's what Peter spent the rest of his life doing. Not long after that, at, at the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit fell, he gets up there and he preaches, and 3,000 people make a decision to follow Jesus in one day. The man who denied Jesus to a little girl is now boldly standing up preaching the gospel. He's told not to preach anymore, and they beat him and tell him to shut up. And he says, I cannot do anything but preach this Jesus. And he prays, God, make me bold. He goes the rest of his life. He's writing letters. He's leading the church. He's going through intense suffering. There's more testing. There's more trials. But every time he goes through a trial and he walks through it, Jesus is empowering him. He's being repentant when he fails, but he keeps coming back. His faith is being tested. And every time it's tested, he's purified by fire. It's like God's burning away all of the junk inside of our life, all of the things that are going to keep us from following after him and living the life that he's called us to. And he keeps going through these, and it leads him to the end of his life when he's kicked out of Rome for preaching Jesus. They say, if you come back, he's an old man at this time. If you come back, we're going to kill you. He's leaving the city of Rome and he has a vision of Jesus and Jesus calls him to go back to Rome to preach the gospel. He turns around knowing that he's going to his death and he gets there, he's arrested again and they crucify him and he says, I'm not even worthy in dying in the manner of my Lord. Would you crucify me upside down? Does that look anything like the man who denied Jesus to the little girl? But what happened is he went through testing. He went through suffering. He went through trials. And through all of that, Jesus was making the faith genuine inside of him. Maybe it had an inherited faith at one time. I'm a Jew, so I guess, you know, I'll follow after the Jewish Messiah. Maybe it was that he had a shallow faith of, you know, I, I guess I'll follow you, but oh, if I have to, like, this could cost me my life, I'm out. If I had to deny things, little girls, I'm out of this whole thing. Or maybe for him it was conditional. Well, Jesus, I was going to follow you because I thought you were going to set up your throne here in the Jerusalem and I was going to sit at your right hand and then you went to the cross and I have to suffer? Like, I'm out, Jesus. Jesus took him through all of those things so his faith wasn't false and produced a genuine faith in Jesus that was so real, that was so pure and so true that he viewed his life as nothing but to serve Jesus and to know him and to make him known. That's the life that I want. When I get to the end of my life, I don't want to die upside down on a cross, but I want to have that same passion for Jesus that Peter had that compelled him to live a life that was so different from how everybody else around him was living. I love this. In James chapter 1, the brother of Jesus writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Remember, he's writing to people being mauled by dogs and burned on sticks. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So this morning, you might be here and you're racked by pain because of something that you're going through right now. I don't want that for anybody, but I know that it's the reality of human life in a fallen world. And this is what I'm going to say to you. Jesus isn't the cause of our trials. He isn't the cause of our suffering. 
But he's the one who will take every terrible thing that we go through in this life and he will use it to produce something good and beautiful inside of us. And that's how we can count it pure joy when we're going through this. Your your brother just got burned at a stake and Peter's telling you, consider it pure joy. Like, that's stupid. If you're living like everybody else is. But if you're living as a follower of Jesus, and you recognize this isn't my home, this isn't my culture, I live a different culture, I have a different king that I'm serving and following, there's a different purpose for my life, I have different passions, my life isn't about preserving myself and seeking my own comfort and my own welfare, my life is about blessing Jesus and allowing him to use me to bless everyone else that's around me. My life isn't about me, it's all about Jesus and everyone else, never about me. That only happens to you when you go through the testing and Jesus works through the trials that you go through to produce that inside of you. Every trial I've gone through in my life, I would never choose it on my own. Never. Like if, if Jesus is like, hey, you want to do that over again? And I'm, nope, like not a chance. But I can go through any trial with an inexpressible joy, a joy that my words, I can never relate to you, the joy I'm able to have through every pain attack that I've gone through, through the loss of every loved one that I've ever gone through, not because I'm happy about the trial, but I'm so happy about what it is that Jesus is going to do through the heartache and through the brokenness that I'm going through. Because it's when we're weak that God comes in and he makes us strong. When we, we figure out, I can't do this on my own. I'm not able to do this. It's when we're racked with pain then we need to remember there's a purpose for the pain, that God's going to do something beautiful inside of it. He never wastes or hurt. And then number two, trials draw you close to God. He continues by saying, you love God even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward of trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Here's the good news of the gospel. It's not that Jesus saves you from your troubles. It's that he saves you from your sins. We all want to get saved from our troubles because we don't understand the full ramifications of our sins and how it's broken us and our relationship with God and our relationship with everyone else. Jesus says, in this world, you will have troubles. That's a guarantee. That's not one of the more encouraging verses in the Bible. He says, you are going to have troubles, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You can take heart because I've overcome the power of sin. I've overcome the power of darkness. I've overcome the power of death. I've overcome the power of suffering. And there is a life that awaits you in your true home, which is heaven. And I'm leading you to that, and I'm never going to fail you in that. And that as you go through this life and every trial and every suffering and all of your brokenness, it's not just a future hope that we have that someday we're going to enter into heaven and be fully restored but we have the hope that here and now we go through our hurts and our sufferings with the presence of God right here with us. He said he'll never leave us. He will never abandon us. He's never going to forsake us. In the midst of your hurt and your suffering right now, you can know the presence of God that's going to bring inexpressible joy, that's going to bring you a peace that this world can never take from you. It's an unexplainable, incomprehensible peace that guards your heart and your mind. You can walk through this life knowing Jesus. And in fact, I would argue that you will know the presence of God most fully in your hardest of days. 
I look across this room, I was looking across the front row, I can just tell you story after story of the trials and the sufferings that these people have gone through. And none of them would have ever chosen to go through what they went through. But God did something so beautiful in it. And the presence of God was so strong as they walked through that. I love Chris. He's one of our six to ten coaches. He moved here from Kalamazoo, Michigan with us, with the seven of us. And he came here because he wanted to be in Ann Arbor because he'd spent three years here battling leukemia as a child. He would never have chosen leukemia. Nobody ever would. I remember him telling me a story once about how he, he was there. I think he had shingles, had just done a tr- transplant, going through chemo, radiation, just a kid under 10, and just needing to know that God was there. And asking God, like, would you be here? And sensing that tangible presence of the God entering the room. And he was still sick. He still had leukemia. He still had radiation. He still had chemo and all the other stuff that was coming. But he had something that was even greater than any of those. He had the presence of the living God who came and enveloped him and held him in his hands. He became the strong tower, the refuge for Chris as just a little child and walked him through all of the hurt and all of the suffering. And you know what happened is now it's produced a faith in Chris that can't be shaken by anything that this world has to throw at him. And now, just like Jesus said, that now I want you to go and feed my sheep, or he says that when you've returned, I want you to go and you know, care for your brothers. That's why he works at Mott's Children's Hospital, because now he's gone back to the place where the enemy tried to destroy him, and he's able to bring the comfort of God because of the refining of his faith and the experience of the present reality of the presence of God here and now through every hurt and suffering that you go through, and that never would have happened to him if he hadn't gone through that brokenness. But Jesus used what the enemy tried to use to kill him to produce something beautiful inside of him, produce a genuine faith, introduce him to the presence and the closeness of God like he'd never known before, and now empowers the ministry where he can go and comfort other kids that are going through it and their parents as well. That's how good God is. That's what he wants to do in every single one of us. It's what he's capable of doing. He's just waiting on us. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's take a moment to be real before God, allow him to speak to us. I said a lot of words, but one word from God is better than every word I could ever speak. So Father, this morning as we quiet our hearts, would you come? Would you speak to us? There are some of you here right now that you're in the midst of a trial. You're in the midst of heartache and brokenness. You have questions that you can't explain, questions that you you don't understand. Right now, I think there's some of you, you need to hear that God's your father. He needs to become real as a father to you right now. There are things that happen to my children that they don't know, that they can't understand, that they would never choose for themselves. But they can always find comfort in my arms. They can feel safe and secure when they're in my arms. Some of you this morning, 
you need to be in the arms of your Father. You need to encounter his presence. You need him to come and to strengthen you to walk through the trial. You need him to come and to heal the brokenness that's inside of your heart. You might want him to remove the trial from you, but that's not what you need the most right now. What you need is to know the presence of God. God, I pray for every person that's going through that right now. Jesus, would you make yourself real? Would you make yourself known? That presence, because with your presence comes freedom. With your presence comes peace. With your presence comes joy. With your presence comes faith. Jesus, we're not asking for answers right now as much as we want that. But we just know that we're sons and daughters that are held in your arms, that are cherished by you, and that you're going to lead us through this, that you're taking us through the hurt, and that you're going to do something so beautiful in us that will make it so worthwhile. Jesus, as we walk through it, we keep our faith in you because you are worthy. Let's be overwhelmed more and more by how worthy you are. Maybe some of you are here this morning and you're realizing that you don't have a genuine faith. Maybe it's been a false faith, an inherited faith. Maybe it's been a shallow faith or a conditional faith. And right now, God's revealing that to you, and he's not doing it to condemn you or to shame you. He's not mad at you because of that, but he's calling you to put your faith and your trust in him. He's calling you to enter into relationship with him. That's the whole, if we read through the Bible from the beginning to the end, it's the whole process and the whole plan of him coming to be our God and for us to be his people, to dwell with him forevermore so he can wipe away every tear, so he can right every wrong, so he can lead you into the full restoration of relationship with him. That's a genuine faith that's going to stand through the testing of everything that you go through and it's what he's calling you to. And all it takes is it says if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that that new life is coming to you. If that's you, this is all you have to do. Jesus, would you forgive me of my sins? I believe that you are God. I believe that you did come, you did die on the cross, and in doing so, you paid the price for my sins. I deserve death, but you died so that I could receive life. God, give me the freedom so that I can walk in the new life you've called me to. I don't want to just be forgiven. I want new life. I want to be different. So would you fill me with your Holy Spirit so you can, I can be empowered to live a different way empowered to overcome temptation and sin, not to go back to the way I used to live. God, to the Holy Spirit, would I know you when I seek you out through reading my Bible, praying, and in worship, God, would I know your presence? Would you become more real to me every day? God, teach me to hear your voice. I want to follow after you from this moment forward. You're my God, and I'm your people. over all of us, Jesus. Make Radiant Church a church where we go through the test and we become refined so that we can go to our brothers so that we can feed your sheep. 
Don't let any hurt that we go through go to waste, but use it to make your beauty known and that our city might find the life that comes only from you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're running over, but we're going to take communion real quick, and the ushers are going to pass that out to you. There's two cups. You just hold on to those, and we're going to sing just a little bit more while they're being passed out, and then after that, we'll take communion together. that he had with his disciples he took the bread and he broke it he said that this is my body broken for you, take and eat so as we take the bread together we remember the broken body of Jesus so that we could be made whole and then he took the wine and he said this is my blood shed for you for the atonement of your sins our sins aren't just covered our sins are fully removed from us. That's the power of the blood of Jesus. Everything that condemned you to death, everything that condemned you to separation from your heavenly Father was all removed by the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. As we take us together, we remember the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You're worthy. You're worthy of the reward of your suffering. And that reward is our hearts. That reward is the people who are worshipers of you. God, every, every thought, every action, every motive, God, we give it all to you because you're worthy and that's our act of worship. I'm going to call my prayer partners forward. They're going to be on the outside in the front here. If there's anything we can pray for you about, maybe you're, you're going through a trial right now and God was ministering to you, which is great, but 
it's really good to have some other people that are encouraging you and praying with you about the situation you're going through. So I encourage you, come let us pray for you. Maybe there's sickness in your body, you need wisdom for a decision, whatever it is. There's no limit to what our God can do. And we see him move miraculously all the time. And this is one of the thoughts you might have because this used to be me. Like, I don't want to go forward because, like, people see how people pray for me. Like, people think I'm weird. You know what the weird thing is? Is when we don't pray for each other. We're the people of God. We pray for each other. We encourage each other. We stand with each other. So if you're going through something, don't go through it alone. Come and let us pray for you. If not, go out there, drink some coffee, meet some friends, and we'll see you next week. God bless.